Hello, and thank you for watching this talk on the history of happiness. I'm Benjamin Story. I'm going to give the first part of the talk, and my wife Jenna Story will take over uh, where I leave off and finish up the talk in a few minutes. So, the history of happiness is a title that is almost fated to disappoint. Happiness, after all, is something we prefer to enjoy than to study. To mention the word happiness is to raise the hope of attaining it. To consider the history of happiness is to embark on a scholar's detour. We want to be happy here and now. Why should we even care that happiness has a history? So the direct approach to happiness would be fine if it were working, but it seems to us that the dominant mode of pursuing happiness in our moment often fails. As college teachers, my wife and I often see this failure in the restless paralysis that afflicts some of our most successful students as they approach graduation. These are students who have done everything right. They have taken all the steps those around them have indicated would lead them to happiness. They have options. Indeed, they've got too many options before them when they graduate. Yet they are hesitant, unnerved, and even miserable before the prospect of embarking on a concrete way of life. How has their education failed them on what is, after all, the central question of human existence? We think the restless paralysis we observe among young people who would seem to have the best odds at happiness is highly characteristic of our moment. It is not, however, unprecedented. Considering the history of happiness can help us overcome our unjustified sense of the distinctiveness of our moment what John Dos Passos once called the idiot delusion of the exceptional. If we can escape that delusion, the thought of the past can become an important ally in our efforts to understand ourselves and our present. Such self-understanding is essential to our pursuit of happiness, for we cannot understand what would satisfy us if we do not know who we are. So, on his 1831 visit, to the United States. Alexis de Tocqueville already saw the unease that we have described and described the Americans he observed as restless in the midst of their prosperity. By the standards of world history, the enormous American middle class Tocqueville observed was both remarkably enlightened and astonishingly prosperous. And yet they tended to have a hard time sitting still and enjoying the, the fruits of their good luck and their hard work. Instead, they plunged ever forward, moving from home to home, from state to state, from career to career, in a never-ending, sometimes desperate seeming, search for a happiness that seemed to flee forever before them. Now, while Tokyo's talents as an observer are justly legendary, talent alone does not account for his ability to penetrate the cheerful and busy surface of American life to detect the emptiness beneath. That insight was made possible by his distinctly French education. From adolescence onward, Tocqueville steeped himself in the literary tradition of those writers the French call the moralistes. The moralistes in French are not moralists in the English sense, guys who thump on the table and, 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 and tell you to eat your green beans. They are rather observers of men, expert students of the hidden movements of the human heart. 
France's tradition of moraliste is a conversation that stretches across four centuries. One of the central themes of that conversation is precisely an argument about happiness. That argument is particularly focused on an understanding of happiness we're going to call imminent contentment. We believe that understanding happiness, and we believe this particular understanding of happiness, is the unspoken standard for many of our pursuits of happiness here in the present. So in this talk, we're going to follow this argument about happiness. First, by considering the thought of the man we take to be the greatest and most original exponent of happiness understood as an imminent contentment, and that is Michel de Montaigne. I'm then going to turn to the thought of, its greatest, uh, of the greatest and most original critic of this understanding of happiness, Blaise Pascal. Finally, my wife's going to describe uh, more precisely what Tocqueville's education in this argument allowed him to see when he came on his famous visit to America. Because, because Tocqueville knows that our way of happiness, uh, our way of pursuing happiness has a history, he's uniquely positioned to embark on the basic mission he, he outlines for himself in his great masterwork, Democracy in America. That is the mission to teach democracy to know itself, as he puts it. We think we can understand ourselves better and perhaps live better lives by attending to what Tocqueville and the Morales uh, who preceded him in this tradition have to say. So, part one, Michel de Montaigne and the art of imminent contentment. Michel de Montaigne uh, was a French nobleman and the inventor of a literary form that is now ubiquitously familiar to us, the essay. Uh, Montaigne first published his own colossal magnum opus, which was called appropriately The Essays, in 1580, and in several subsequent expanded editions before his death in 1592. Those essays were read by almost all educated people in France and wider, wider Europe throughout the 17th and 18th century. Although uh, Montaigne is less, less well known than he should be in the United States, his influence on European literature and life rivals that of figures such as Shakespeare and Miguel de Cervantes. So uh, during his lifetime, Montaigne lived through eight of the wars of religion that tore France apart over the course of the 16th century. He began writing his great book in 1572, which is the year of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which is the worst event of the French Wars of Religion, and which has been described as the Kristallnacht of the French monarchy. While Montaigne's comments on the events of those wars are often indirect, he lets his readers see them as the ever-present uh, ever backdrop of his lively, ironic, sometimes ebullient essays. The contrast between that ghastly historical context and Montaigne's depiction of his, of his own apparently successful search for happiness gives the essays their pathos. At the age of 39, Montaigne sold his office in the Parlement of Bordeaux, giving up a frustrating political career without regret. He retired to his chateau, spent much of his time in a study at the top of a tower there, and called that inner sanctum the Cabinet of the Muses. In that inner sanctum, he began a work of tremendous introspection in which he embarks on a search for self-knowledge that will help him understand the deepest sources of the disaster of his own country. We are never at home. We are always beyond, Montaigne writes. 
in one of the opening chapters of that book. Fear, desire, and hope steal us away from ourselves and launch us toward the beyond, the future, the eternal, the transcendent. In this tendency of the soul to reach out beyond itself, Montaigne finds the source of all France's blood and fanaticism. It is because we cannot stay home, because we cannot mind our own business, that we raise the stakes of our common life until we believe that eternity can be at stake in a difference of political opinion and intrude ourselves, often violently, into the affairs of others. To correct this tendency, which he sees as a source not only of social disruption but also of self-alienation, Montaigne teaches a new art of pursuing happiness. At the center of that art is a technique of psychic circumscription, as Montaigne calls it. The course of our desires, he writes, must be circumscribed and restrained to the nearest and most contiguous good things. Moreover, their course should be directed not in a straight line that ends up elsewhere, but in a circle of which the two points grasp one another and meet in ourselves by a brief contour. So this strategy of circumscription is the core of Montaigne's art of pursuing happiness imminently, here and now. We learn to be at home. We overcome the natural tendency of the human soul toward ecstasy, toward getting outside of ourselves, through a moral formula that we call moderation through variation. That is, Montaigne recommends that we attend to all the pleasures of human life, reading, writing, food, dance, love, correspondence, running a household, tending a garden, and all kinds of other things, without disdaining any part of our being. And yet, we should take none of it too seriously. We shouldn't expect nirvana from anything. Montaigne seeks to achieve the ancient counsel of moderation, nothing too much, by adding to it a less austere modern corollary, nothing too little. Nothing too much, but nothing too little, is a formula for happiness rooted in Montaigne's famous skepticism. In the longest chapter of the essays, which is entitled The Apology for Ramon Sabon, he criticizes every account of the human good, the secret to happiness that has been offered by history's philosophers. These arguments about the good life are manifestations of human vanity, as Montaigne sees it, whose absurdity is proven by their very proliferation. After all, Montaigne suggests, if there were a single summum bonum, a single uh, human good that is the secret to happiness, would the philosophers not have come to agreement of it, uh, about it by now, after so many centuries of argument? So don't choose, Montaigne suggests. Don't pursue one notion of the human good. Instead, enjoy a little bit of every conceivable human good. The central virtue necessary to pursuing happiness so understood is what Montaigne calls nonchalance. We can see what he means by this nonchalance in the way that he imagines meeting his own death. He says, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, nonchalant about death, and still more about my unfinished garden. It's a wonderful line. And so Montaigne imagines with everything, we should be aloof from nothing, but also terrified of nothing. 
and perhaps in love with nothing, ever keeping our equilibrium in the midst of the vagaries of human existence. Such was Montaigne's art of being at home in this world. Its influence is incalculable. From Descartes and Hobbes in the 17th century to Stefan Zweig and Virginia Woolf in the 20th, many of the most influential authors in everything from politics to poetry steep themselves in Montaigne and bear the mark of his influence. But that influence has never been limited to writers. The essays are composed of short chapters suitable for the bedside table or the Dennis waiting room and tailored to the taste of people who want to read about real human beings shown as they are, free from the cloudiness of cant and convention. In the generations immediately following his death, Montaigne became the hero of an ascendant class of that age that was in search of a moral ideal. That class, sometimes called the bourgeois gentilhomme or bourgeois gentleman, uh, were men who rose to prominent positions in France through wealth and education rather than noble birth or feats of arms. They patterned their lives after an ideal they called the honnête homme, the honest man or honorable man, a figure marked by curiosity, by broad-mindedness, by humanity, but never tainted by the proud obduracy that was the characteristic vice of the old aristocracy, the honnête homme aimed to replace. These bourgeois gentilhommes singled out Montaigne as the greatest embodiment of this new ideal. But in, history's one, uh, in one of history's great ironies, it was precisely from this class of bourgeois gentilhommes that Montaigne's greatest reader and his greatest critic, Blaise Pascal, would emerge. So, part two, Blaise Pascal and the inhumanity of imminence. The father of French Romanticism, a man named François-René de Chateaubriand, called Blaise Pascal's genius frightening. Pascal's father, Etienne Pascal, was a royal official and mathematician and concerned himself intensely in his son's education. At first, however, he did not want that education to include mathematics because he was concerned that uh, studying math would distract his son from his Latin and his Greek. A good father would think. The, uh, but the young Pascal overheard the talk of the mass mathematicians who frequented his father's home and started thinking about math on his own. As his sister tells the story, one day when the boy was about 12, his father entered his room unexpectedly and found young Blaise working out Euclid's 32nd proposition on his own and had apparently arrived there without any instruction. At the end, the elder Pascal had a change of heart and began to formally instruct young Blaise, who would go on to write a treatise on conic sections that is a major landmark in the history of geometry, to discover the numerical sequence we call Pascal's triangle, which is the basis of probability theory, to invent and preside over the manufacture of the world's first uh, working mechanical calculator, several of, uh, several of which still exist in good working order to this day, to design experiments, to design the experiments that, that first demonstrated the phenomena of atmospheric pressure. Pascal also had a stupendous literary career that began with a brilliant 
daring satire of the most powerful churchmen in France, the Jesuits, that satire is called the Provincial Letters, and continued with the, one of the most important works of Christian apologetics ever written, the, uh, the Pensée. In 1662, he and his friend Artus de Rouenet uh, launched the world's first system of public transportation called the Five Cent Carriages in Paris. Pascal would die later that year at only 39 years of age. Frightening genius, indeed. Pascal's mathematical, scientific, and philanthropic accomplishments mark him as a first-order modern mind, a major contributor to Francis Bacon's modern project for the improvement of the human condition. But Pascal sees that what modern science shows us about nature makes plain that we cannot be at home within it. One might embellish a little bit on Pascal's scientific work to say that not only does nature not abhor a vacuum, as the scholastic commonplace held, but that a vacuum is no small part of what nature is. On this view, modern science makes the Montaigne project of being at home in this world that much more difficult, for it intensifies rather than blunts our need for transcendence. So Pascal reads Montaigne, whose essays became a sort of secular breviary for the ascendant class of his time, with the intensity of a serious man studying something he finds both brilliant and dangerously wrong. Looking around at the human beings who modeled their own lives after the pattern of the Montaigne on Etum, Pascal comes to believe that they are both fooling themselves and deceiving others about the central human question, the question of happiness. In the favorite pastimes of that class, that class that strives to be curious about everything but captivated by nothing, Pascal sees the love of variety that Montaigne so celebrated. He saw it as a love of diversion, which is another favorite Montaignean word, and investigated just why it is that diversion is so attractive to human beings, which is, after all, is a little bit mysterious. Why do we, why do we like to distract ourselves? He takes gambling as, as his example and asks what exactly the gambler loves about his activity. As a scientist who knows how to isolate variables, Pascal asks, is it the winnings that we're interested in, that the gambler is interested in, or is it the game? Give the man his winnings without his cards or his dice, Pascal tells us, and you'll make him unhappy. That's not what he wants. But play the game without anything at stake, and the charm of the thing is equally dead. When we're in the game, we think about the winnings. When we won or lost, we long for the game to begin again. Whichever state we find ourselves in, we find ourselves thinking about its contrary. In idleness, we long for activity. In activity, we long for rest. This perpetual unease with the present reality of our lives leads Pascal to note that human beings are incapable of sitting alone in our rooms, as he says. Silence and stillness terrify us. And so we constantly throw ourselves into work or love or amusement, anything at all, that will take away the emptiness of solitude and quiet. But why is this emptiness so unnerving? We cannot sit alone in our rooms because when we do, we have no choice but to face ourselves. What we find when we do so is the inescapable desire for wisdom on the one hand 
and happiness on the other. But human life is the continual discovery that we cannot get what we cannot avoid wanting. That is, that ignorance, suffering, and death are the fate of the only animal, the human animal, who speaks of knowledge, contentment, and permanence. For Pascal, human beings are therefore beings of disproportion, a disproportion he captures in some of his most moving images. We are, he tells us, thinking beings, as weak and fragile as the humblest of plants, and yet capable of thinking thoughts such as infinity, eternity, and universe. The universe itself, by contrast, does not, as far as we know, think anything at all. To be human is to feel like a deposed king, a man dislodged from his rightful place. One of his most uh, exalted aphorisms, Pascal writes that man transcends man. And yet he notes that the inner experience of such self-transcendence is perpetual discontent. A being of disproportion is therefore naturally unhappy. While this sounds depressing, it is profoundly important and even liberating news in our age of happiness signaling, when many of us feel compelled to project a smiling, successful, delighted face to the world, even in our hours of most intractable sadness. Unhappiness, Pascal tells us, is not a disorder which can, which, which can be medicated away. It is, rather, the natural human condition. Restlessness, therefore, is not a mental aberration to be corrected by a Montaignean psychological stratagem. Restlessness, restlessness is, rather, a fitting response to our unhappy condition. As such, we should pay attention to it and even concentrate it into a way of life that recognizes the impossibility of satisfying ourselves within nature's narrow boundaries. That way of life consists of seeking an anguish, as Pascal put it, searching for the necessarily more than natural answer to the question that is the human heart. No one typified that anguish search better than Pascal himself. Whereas Montaigne pictures the good life in the form of a circle, which is varied, moderate, and self-referential, Pascal lives like a comet, burning ever forward, straight and bright, through an enormous range of the most promising human endeavors until he disappears, as Tocqueville remarks, into the bosom of God. The only happiness he finds is in the love of that very God, who, like man, is a sufferer. Pascal's wisdom is a sad wisdom, which many of us might like to forget. The Promethean 18th century, with its vast hopes for human improvement and vast impatience with natural limits, did indeed choose to forget Pascal's sad wisdom on its way to launching the revolutions that would give us modern democracy. But once the modern revolutions had taken place, Alexis de Tocqueville would look around and see that Pascal's sad wisdom might be the key to understanding the democratic soul that emerged triumphant from those modern revolutions, a soul whose quest for happiness mores, owes more to the history of happiness we've just described than meets the eye. Thank you.